following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, we finally are here at the home stretch, arriving at the end of our series that we started this summer in this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we've entitled the series Life Under the Sun, based on a phrase that um, the author uses almost 30 times to talk about his experience uh, of going through life here on earth. And so we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. Uh, the very last chapter of the book to wrap up the series. And so if you have your Bibles, we'd invite you to turn there. Otherwise, you could look at the text up here on the screen as well. Ecclesiastes 12, words, verses 1 through 14, and it reads, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. The strong men are bent, the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, and the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is wearisome, of the, is a weary, weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we receive this teaching, this book of Ecclesiastes is your gift to us, instructing us to understand what wisdom really is in your perspective. And so whether we are young or old in this congregation, no matter what stage of life that we might find ourselves in, grant to us a heart of wisdom that is able to number our days and recognize what it really means to live, to truly live a worthwhile life as you see it through your eyes. For we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, uh, we began our series for the first like 
half dozen messages with a movie clip at the start of each one. And then uh, I stopped showing movie clips for a while. And some people were asking, like, it's going to be a movie today? And uh, uh, they were like, sorry, I had to say no. Um, but I figured since we started out with a bang like that, we'll go out with a bang and I'll show you a movie clip as a little treat for all you children. Um, I don't know, how many of you have seen the movie that was released last year, Gravity? I'm, I'm guessing probably majority of you in this room have seen it. It's uh, produced and directed by uh, Alfonso Cuaron, I think who's a, a great director. Um, it tells the story of Dr. Ryan Stone, who is play, portrayed by the actress Sandra Bullock, uh, who's a medical engineer, and she's aboard her first space shuttle mission. And while she's making adjustments to the Hubble uh, Deep Space Telescope, their mission is suddenly thrown into chaos when they're struck by this debris from a destroyed Russian satellite. And so let's just take a look at the clip, and then I'll share a little bit about some thoughts on, on, on the movie. You were able to hear um, clearly the, the dialogue was a little muffled there, but uh, you know what Ryan Stone ends up saying is, I had a daughter. Uh, she was four years old. Uh, she was going to school. And uh, then she just fell, hit her head, and she died. She said the stupidest thing. Um, on the surface, uh, gravity just seems like a, a, a thriller. Uh, about some astronauts' heroic efforts to survive this catastrophic accident in space. Um, but at a deeper level, it's the story of a woman who, having struggled and suffered from the tragic death of her four-year-old daughter, has essentially lost any sense of meaning or purpose in life. Um, as she says in that movie clip, I wake up, I go to work, and I just drive. I just drive doesn't matter where I go. It's as if her own life ended in that moment that her daughter died. This is one of the most iconic images in the movie. It's of Ryan curled in a fetal position, floating inside the International Space Station, looking like a baby inside her mother's womb. Quran, the director, used this image to represent the rebirth that Ryan would need to undergo if she was going to survive this accident in space? Will she find enough reason to go on living? Will she be able to muster enough motivation to go through the extraordinary measures that she would need to go through in order to make it back to Earth alive? The jury is really out on this answer. Um, but her desperate circumstances reveal the hard truth that she hadn't actually really been living at all. She was just going through the motions after the death of her daughter. But it also awoke in her a hunger to live again, to cherish this gift of life that she had been given. And so really this movie Gravity is about rebirth, the rebirth of a person that was inwardly dead but discovers life again. And I think in a similar way, the writer of Ecclesiastes, this guy who calls himself the preacher, has been on a search to understand what it really means to live life. It's, it's pretty hard to go through life 
unscathed by disappointment or even tragedy like Dr. Stone had to go through. None of us can predict the twists and turns that life is going to hand to us. And it's in the midst of this broken world filled with pain and suffering that we struggle with this question. What does it really mean to live a worthwhile life? What does it really mean to find a reason to live and find a motivation to go another day? The preacher begins his final chapter of his book with these words in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then in the next eight verses, the preacher gives us a poem. He speaks in poetry. It's actually beautiful poetry that describes the pain of the aging process. And I think one of the dangers is that almost by analyzing poetry, you sort of destroy it. You know what I mean? It's not the purpose of poetry is to tear it apart and deconstruct it. And so what I thought instead of breaking down each verse of the poem and try to explain its meaning is that I would just give you snapshots of what I think the poem is capturing in pictorial form. And I apologize for anyone who's going to listen to this podcast. You're just going to have to use your imagination to picture what kind of slides I'm showing here. But he begins by describing old age as the darkening of the night sky, as the final rays of light fade away into twilight. It says in verse 2, the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. He then compares old age to darkening storm clouds. These aren't just regular storm clouds though. These are like the clouds of winter that just don't go away even after the rains have come. They continue to just menacingly loom overhead. Then lastly, the preacher uses the imagery of a dilapidated house, one that is falling apart, abandoned. Rooms and hallways that were once filled with the sound of children and of laughter and of entertainment are now silent, filled only with broken relics of the past.
He then concludes with these words in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 5 through 7. The grasshopper drags itself along. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. The mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. The dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Commenting on this poem about aging and death, Derek Kidner writes these really powerful words. There is a chill of winter in the air as the rains persist and the clouds turn daylight into gloom and the night into pitch blackness. It is a scene somber enough to bring home to us not only the fading of physical and mental powers, but the more general desolations of old age. There are many lights that are liable then to be withdrawn besides those of the senses and faculties as one by one old friends are taken familiar customs change and long-held hopes now have to be abandoned all this will come at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it in one's early years and for the greater part of life troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks not disasters one expects the sky to clear eventually it is hard to adjust to the closing of that long chapter, to know that now in the final stretch, there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again, and time will no longer heal, but kill. And that's why in light of this arc of life, the preacher says, remember God when you are young, before these darker days eventually overtake you. Uh, the message here is that the days will come and the days may come when you feel so beaten down by life, when you've gone through enough tragedy, when you've had enough hopes dashed, when life takes enough U-turns and bumps in the road that a cynicism sets in, a hopelessness, a despair. And in that moment, you may sort of not even care about the meaning of life or even of finding God. But... You just say, I don't really have a desire for anything anymore in my life. And in essence, what the preacher seems to be saying is, don't let yourself get to that day when you suddenly start thinking about eternity and about spiritual matters. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 11 to 12, we found these words. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The first thing that I find interesting here is that the word shepherd is capitalized. And I think rightly so. Because I think as most Bible scholars agree, this shepherd is in reference to God himself. And he's saying, these things that I've written down in my book, they're not just my own thoughts. You know, the life according to the preacher, the according to Solomon. He's saying, these are words of wisdom from God himself to teach you what life is all about. And he says that if you would take heed of them, they are like fixed nails. In other words, in the uncertainty of life and in the mystery of trying to understand what it's all about, these words of wisdom will be like anchors to your soul. They will ground you in some truths 
that will help you to go through whatever storms that you're asked to face, whatever difficulties and challenges and mysteries that you just cannot understand. Throughout this series, I've been using the word journey a lot. And justifiably so, because in essence, the book of Ecclesiastes is the record of a man's journey, a personal journey to find the meaning of life under the sun. But also I think we can say that there is a danger of becoming so consumed by the journey itself, the search for truth, the the excitement of the hunt, that we never actually arrive at any meaningful destination. And as the Ecclesiastes writer is saying this, there's no end to the books that you can write. And you can research for all your life and you can be on the search for truth until the very end of days. And yet at the end of, at the end of it all, it's just, it's just wearisome. It just tires you out. Um, in other words, somewhere this journey has to lead to somewhere. It has to conclude at a destination. It can't be researched to the very end. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this novel that um, really changed and challenged me in some very profound ways describing heaven and hell uh, called The Great Divorce. And in that novel, he talks about a man who is brought to the threshold of heaven by this heavenly being, this heavenly spirit. And the spirit says, if you would only confess your sins and repent, I give you an invitation to enter into heaven itself. And this man looks at the threshold of heaven and thinks about the invitation. And he replies in the following way. I am perfectly ready to consider it. Of course I should require some assurances. I should want to guarantee that you are taking me to a place where I shall find a wider sphere of usefulness and scope for the talents that God has given me and an atmosphere of free inquiry. In short, all that one means by civilization and the spiritual life. And the spiritual being replies to him, No, said the other, I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry. For I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. Ah, But we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? To travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. You see, the guy is more enamored of the journey than of the destination. If that were true, how could anyone travel, hopefully? There would be nothing to hope for, replies the Spirit. And this is the man's final reply. And actually, uh, the Spirit says to him one more time, but you must free yourself that there is something... uh, The man replies to him, but you must free yourself that there is something stifling about the idea of finality. To which the Spirit finally responds, you think that because hitherto you have experienced truth only with an abstract intellect. I will bring you where you can taste it like honey and be embraced by it as by a bridegroom. Your thirst shall be quenched. Listen, said the Spirit. Once you were a child, 
Once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. This to me is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in that novel. Sadly, after this exchange, the man finds some lame reason to excuse himself from the conversation, and he goes on his way, right at the threshold of heaven, but never having entered it. Because after all, it's the journey that's important. It's the searching, the discovery that's important, to which the Spirit says, no, the journey is there for a reason. It's to bring you to a finality of a destination that you will reach one day if you really are seeking for the truth. And the preacher's own journey found its conclusion in verses 13 to 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. You know, at the end of his book, he closes in verse 8 with these words. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. What's interesting is, these are the exact same words that the preacher used at the very beginning of the book. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And so he begins with these words, and he ends with these words. And when you sort of think about it at a surface level... It just feels like the guy went on this big circular journey and ended up right where he began, you know? It was like a pointless journey. He started out saying everything is vanity and he ended his life saying everything is vanity. But that isn't what really happens. One of the things that we have to remember is that the NIV tends to translate this word vanity as meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And I don't think that that's the best translation of that word. We talked about a better translation would be vapor or mist or even smoke. You know, it's this idea of life being not so much meaningless as it is fleeting. Like you're chasing after what the meaning of life is, but it's like trying to grab smoke in your hand. It's so elusive. Just when you think that you grasp its meaning, it just slips out from between your fingers like smoke. When he first used these words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, at the beginning of the book, I think he did speak it with a certain tone of despair, with hopelessness. In other words, what he was asking when he said that everything was vanity is, what's the point of everything in life? What's the point of it all? I mean, what is the point of anything that you pour your life into? And what he said was, you know, in the start of my journey, what I committed myself to was to indulge in everything possible in which I thought I could find meaning. And he says, I denied myself nothing. It was the grand experiment of my life. And I looked in every corner of this earth to find something that would give life meaning. But as he went on in this journey, as we discovered, everything led to a dead end. Whether it was work, whether it was pleasure, whether it was money, whether it was knowledge and the seeking of more and more information. He said, at the end of it all, it all left me empty. It all left me feeling like this ultimately cannot be the answer to life. There has to be more to the life than this. 
You know, often when we address the issue of workaholism and just sort of killing yourself with overwork, usually the subtext of it is that what you should really be doing to make life meaningful is invest in your family, right? That's, that's usually the two things we put on uh, against each other is work or family. The suggestion is that if you live for family, that's what's going to give ultimate meaning in your life. But through the pages of Ecclesiastes, one of the things the preacher says is, not even family, I mean, if you choose to put all your investment in your family, there's no guarantee that that's even going to be a secure investment. Because the truth is, even your family could one day break your heart. So he's asking, listen, what is there really worth living for? That at the end of my life, I can look at it all and say, life is beautiful. Life is worth living. And when he looked at the things of this world, everything left him high and dry. Everything left him wanting. In essence, he said trying to find ultimate meaning in these things was like chasing vapor. It was like chasing the mist. It was meaningless, frustrating work. But when the preacher utters these words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity for this last time, he is not speaking it with a spirit of despair. He is speaking with a heart of wisdom. Because he has learned at the end of life journey that God alone can give meaning to this life. In other words, what he's saying now when he says vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he's saying this. Without God in the picture, nothing makes sense. All of life is absurd. It's pointless. Why all this striving when at the end of the day you just die and you just become dust? What's the point of it all? But as he is saying in these closing words of his book, when you center your life on God, he gives meaning to everything else. In other words, when you give your life over to him, for the first time you're able to really enjoy your life as a gracious gift from God, as it was intended to be enjoyed. You no longer have to try to find your worth and validation in your work. So now you can actually enjoy your work, knowing that even that is a gift of God. Instead of being consumed by the hunger for more and more money, you can now be courageous and generous with your resources, investing them in the kingdom of God. When God is at the center of your life, even your pleasures are put back into their proper place. Not as something that competes with your love for God, but becomes an expression of God's love for you. When you stop trying to be a God yourself, you give up that fight of trying to manipulate circumstances around you, or even trying to manipulate loved ones to try to get them to be what you want them to be or do what you want them to do. But you just hand over everything to God and say, Lord, this is in your hands. This is not my business to try to fix everyone in my life and to fix every problem that I face. And as we talked about, what that does is something rather incredible in the life and the heart of a person who has that faith. Because for the very first time, you can actually be in that moment, really in that moment. You know, one of the things we talked about in this series of Ecclesiastes is how so rarely we're in that moment. 
We, we just sort of glide through life as an observer to our own life. Our mind is always preoccupied. I, I'm guessing that even some of you here are here in body, but not in mind, because you're already thinking about what you're going to do Sunday afternoon. Right? That's just how we go through life. We're always problem solving. We're always working the angles. We're always trying to figure out our life. We're always trying to manipulate. But when we really say God is God and I am his creature, loved by him, cared for by my shepherd, suddenly I'm free from all of that bondage. And I can actually just sit still and be present in the moment and be there for people and be there for God and just actually celebrate and enjoy and receive and take in all of this as the little gifts of God given to us by Him throughout our lives to be enjoyed as an expression of His love. I think trusting in God also frees us to go through the darker seasons of life, knowing that ultimately our lives are not in our hands, but in God's hands. And knowing that even in the dark days, I don't have to wallow in despair, but that even in this there is meaning. Even in the brokenness, God can redeem it for good and do good in my life. We've been traveling with this preacher on his epic journey to discover the meaning of life under the sun. But as we close out this book and as I wrap out the series, I just want to ask you, where are you on your own journey? Where do you stand in this journey? My worry is that like that man in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, you could be standing right there at the threshold of heaven and not enter. When I ask you, do you hunger to discover life's ultimate purpose like a drowning man hungers for that next breath of air? Or do you just tinker with spiritual truths? What I'm saying is that you can come to church regularly You can actually participate in a lot of religious activities. But the truth is, you don't have anything that could be described as a vital living relationship with God. Instead, you're sort of gliding through life, non-committal and uncertain about everything. In other words, yours is not so much a desperate journey in search of life's meaning but it's probably more accurately described as an aimless wandering through life. Uncertain about what you're really even looking for. Wouldn't even recognize the destination if it was right in front of your face. And maybe the truth is, none of this actually distresses you all that much. Because your comfort is always that you could deal with this stuff tomorrow. It's an old adage that says, Youth is wasted on the young, right? Uh, You've got places to go. You've got things to do. You've got life to live. And so you don't want to be bogged down with these questions about God and eternity because you're just too busy for that. There's too much going on in your life for that. But as the preacher closes his book, he says there is a wisdom to be gained 
in recognizing in your earlier years what it really means to live a meaningful life. What the real purpose of life is about. And I think the subtext there is there's a certain naivete of thinking that you can, in your younger years, live your life however you want. And then when you get older and you feel the clock running out, you can start getting serious about these eternal things and just get right with God and then slide into heaven like you would slide into third base. For one thing, I think the Bible tells us you don't even know whether you're going to be given another tomorrow. You really don't. You don't, you don't know the number of your days that God has given to you. But also, probably more important than that is, like sort of the grooves of a dirt road worn down by endless wheels running over them, your daily choices that you're making today are wearing grooves into your heart that are not so easy to turn away from later in life. In other words, you are choosing a certain destiny for your life by the choices that you're making today. And it's naive to say that on a flip of a dime, you can just suddenly decide to become another person in the final closing seasons of your life. What the Bible seems to be suggesting is life doesn't work that way. Instead, what you may ultimately find is that as you enter the final seasons of your life, you've chosen to live in a certain way, not acknowledging God, so that at the end of your life, all you find in your heart is bitterness and darkness and despair. And you may find yourself at a point where you say, I don't really even care about that stuff. I really don't. I've lost the strength for the fight. I'm not even fighting anymore. I don't even know what I'm fighting for. I don't even know what I'm living for anymore. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is, before you get to that day in your life, have the wisdom of youth to say, the whole purpose of life is to live for God and live for His, thing, for His purposes in my life. You don't have to go through a long, tortuous journey and have to go through all kinds of dark seasons to learn that wisdom. It's right there for you to understand whatever your age may be, whatever season you find yourself in here in this room this day. Life is like a vapor. It is vanity. But true wisdom is found in realizing that God alone can anchor us in the bedrock foundation of his promises to us. What he says in the closing words of his book is to say, you know, you don't even have the luxury of being your own judge. Of be, you, don't, you don't get to cast the final verdict on whether your life was worthwhile. It says that God has that right alone. It says that one day your spirit will go home and return to the creator who gave you life and breath. And it is he that will weigh the worth of your life. It is ultimately he that gets to declare the verdict of your life, not yourself. You don't get to choose your own destiny in terms of what eternity is going to look like for you. What the Bible tells us 
in light of that is that it all depends on how we respond to his son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave to us to give us life. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, we find these words. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's not about how faithful you were in coming to church, how much money you put into that offering plate, how hard you try to resist temptation. When God makes the final verdict of every one of our lives, the criteria is simply, how did you respond to my son? How did you respond to Jesus Christ and the gift that he offered you of eternal life? Did you know him personally? Did you personally, by faith, receive the gift of eternal life that he offered to you by dying on the cross? And I think, I know I'm sort of closing this book on a bit of a somber note, but I think sometimes it's important. You know, we talked about the idea of often distracting ourselves with pleasure and drowning ourselves in laughter. But sometimes there's a moment when we have to pause and really ask ourselves, what am I living for? Am I just jumping around uncommitted to whatever I feel like doing in that moment? Or does my life really have direction? Does it really have purpose? Or am I just sort of playing at life? Just sort of dabbling with spiritual truths. Just tinkering with these ideas. But the truth is, I'm just kind of wandering aimlessly through life. And I don't really see any real trajectory here. I don't really see any purpose. And what the Bible tells us is, the focus of our life has to be our relationship with Jesus Christ. And what He offers us. And when we discover Christ, when we find Jesus, it changes everything in our life. It changes our entire outlook on how we live our lives so that we can finally, for the first time, truly live. Truly live. Let me just close my message today with these words. They're attributed to Max Lucado, but I'm actually not sure if he said these words or who the author of these words are. But I think they're very powerful words that capture the essential message of the book of Ecclesiastes so well. Rhythmic waves. A little boy is on the beach. On his knees, he scoops and pats the sand with plastic shovels into a, into a bright red bucket. Then he upends the bucket on the surface and lifts it. And to the delight of the little architect, a castle tower is created. All afternoon, he will work spooning out the moat Packing the walls, bottle tops will be the sentries, popsticks will be the bridges, and a sandcastle will be built. Big city, busy streets, rumbling traffic. A man is in his office. At his desk, he shuffles papers into stacks and delegates assignments. He cradles the phone on his shoulder and punches the keyboard with his fingers. Numbers are juggled and contracts are signed. And much to the delight of the man, a prophet has finally been made. All his life, he will work formulating the plans, forecasting the future. Annuities will be the centuries. Capital gains will be the bridges. And an empire 
will be built. Two builders of two castles. They have much in common. They shape granules into grandeurs. They see nothing and make something. They are diligent and determined. And for both the tide will rise and the end will come. And yet that is where the similarities cease. For the boy sees the end while the man ignores it. Watch the boy as the dusk approaches. As the waves near, the wise child begins to clap. There is no sorrow, no fear, no regret. He knew this would happen. He is not surprised. And when the great wave breaker crashes into his castle and his masterpiece is sucked into the sea, he stands and smiles. He smiles and picks up his tools and quickly goes home. The grown-up, however, is not so wise. As the wave of years crash on his castle, he is terrified and mortified. He hovers over the sandy monument to protect it. He blocks the waves from the walls he has made, saltwater soaked and shivering. He snarls at the incoming tide. It is my castle, he defies. The ocean need not respond. Both know to whom the sand belongs. I don't know much about sand castles, but children do. Watch them and learn. Go ahead and build, but build with a child's heart. Where the sun sets and the tides take, salute the process of life. Take your father's hand and go home. Let's pray. As we um, just close out our series in Ecclesiastes, would invite you to just reflect a little bit about what we're talking about throughout the series. The preacher, this man on a journey to find life's meaning. And in the early stages of the journey, all he feels is frustration, and anger, and bitterness, and hopelessness. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. It's all vapor. Nothing lasts. Nothing provides the happiness that I thought it would. Life is just a bunch of disappointments. But he keeps marching on. He keeps sojourning on his hunger and desperation for truth. And somewhere in this journey, the preacher begins to change. He becomes transformed by the journey. As he begins to gain wisdom from God, he comes to realize Without God in the picture, nothing makes sense. Nothing seems worth it. It's all vanity. What was it even for? Everything that I once put my hopes in just breaks my heart. But he says, you know, when God is in the picture, suddenly I find an anchor in the storm. I find something that suddenly starts to feel like a sure foundation like an actual destination worth camping at. I want to suggest that I think for a lot of us, um, we tinker with spiritual truths and even our relationship with God. I think for a lot of us, we dabble with religion. And, you know, yeah, God is a good thing in my life, but I got a lot of other things I'm pursuing right now. 
And I'm not really sure I'm ready to put all my eggs in this basket, you know? And as he closes out his book, he ends it with a bit of this warning, saying, you know, be careful about being so presumptuous that you can sort of get to the end of your life and sort of say, yeah, then I'll get right with God and I'll fix everything and I'll, I'll get all spiritual, I'll get all holy, and uh, that way I can get on my deathbed and feel confident that I'm going to go to heaven. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, don't be so sure about that. The choices that you make in the present day are really choosing a destiny for tomorrow. I got to tell you, um, I am so blessed by the older members of our church. Um, honestly, in some ways, I feel like they have a more childlike heart than many of us in our 20s and 30s in our church. You know, just last week, Mr. Lee was actually begging me to be allowed to come to the core meeting. And I, was t I had to tell him, no, I can't get some of you 20-something-year-olds to come even if I beg you. And he's saying, can I come to the core meeting? And when I look at Mrs. Abella worshiping with her hands lifted up, she's more childlike in her expression of devotion to worship than I think many of us who are half her age. And that distresses me. That worries me. I think we need to recapture that childlike heart and recognize that the journey is there for the purpose of reaching a destination. We need to stop wandering aimlessly and dabbling with religion, making that firm commitment to Christ, saying, I choose to follow you. I choose to make you the center of my life. I choose to believe in everything that the Bible says and to invest my entire life around the promises that you give me in your word. No backup plan. I'm going to burn my bridges and follow you. What God tells us is, listen, it's not about how moral a life you live how hard you try to be a good person. To truly discover the meaning of life is to discover His Son, Jesus Christ. And realize that He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. By dying on the cross for our sins, He gave us the opportunity to enter into heaven and have eternal life. And all we have to do is receive that gift freely to be able to find the true meaning of life. And I just want to invite you today, if you have never done so, maybe this might be the day when you give your life over to Christ. Say, I do repent of my sins. I give my life to you, God. I receive by faith what I could never do for myself, but what you have done for me. To believe in the cross, to believe in what you've done for me on that cross. Maybe for some of us, we've already prayed those prayers. We've gone through those motions. But the truth is, our lives don't really reflect that kind of devotion to God. The truth is that we're dabblers of religion, tinkerers of spiritual truths. Maybe what God is saying is, is listen, your life needs focus. It needs direction. It's not as if you've really reached the destination, but you're just wandering. You're just searching. And sure, the journey can be fun at times. But how terrible it is if you find yourself right at the threshold of God, 
and yet never having entered, never having made a commitment. We just just pray before God right now and just maybe come before Him and say, God, I give you my life. I want to live that life that has purpose and meaning. At the end of the day, that I can look back at this life that I've lived, breathe my last breath with a smile on my face, and surrender my soul to you, my Father, with absolute confidence in my heart, know that I'm returning to your loving hands. You just pray that for a few minutes, and then we'll respond in a time of worship before God. 